Uh, for those of, the, uh, those of you that don't know me, my name is um, John Kennedy. I'm one of the members here at St. John's. And uh, we're just starting a new series uh, on uh, decision-making um, and what, what the Bible teaches us a little bit about that. And tonight we're going to be looking at decision-making and the will of God. Um, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be referring to those passages um, that we read earlier. Now, we uh, have recently had an extension built on the back of our house. And for those of you that are involved in building work, I'm looking at Gareth, you'll know there are a multitude of decisions to be made uh, when you're undertaking building work. Um, and even when you're getting close to the end and you want to choose what color uh, paint you're gonna put on the wall and you think all the big decisions have been made, well, no, that is uh, in itself a very complicated decision. You may think that deciding that you want to paint the, the wall blue is fairly straightforward, uh, but that is just the start of it. You go to the shop, you buy one of those little palette, or you get one of those palette books, you open the blue page, and you're confronted with about 25 to 30 different shades of blue. Uh, as, far as, they, uh, as far as I can tell, they come with impenetrable names. They're of no help in deciding what color blue uh, that is. But you stare at them for a long time, and you decide that really this wall is a sort of blue lagoon type of war, uh, wall, only to discover that your other half, your better half, decides that it's really a vast lake kind of blue. So decision made, at least we're going to go with Vast Lake, but no, no, that's not it, because uh, now we need to get um, some tester pots, because the blue that I'm seeing in the colour palette is not the same as when it's on the wall. So we paint the wall and we look at it at different lights, daylight, dawn, dusk, maybe some artificial light, um, and then after all we decide that really we're, we're after a lost lake kind of blue. We're making decisions all of the time. Some of them are inconsequential, some of them are very important. Psychologists suggest that we make about 35,000 decisions a day. Now, I couldn't find the paper that uh, told me how they'd come to that uh, figure, but no doubt we make lots and lots of decisions. And the greater the stakes involved when we make a decision, the permanence of the decision, um, the cost of reversing the decision if we get it wrong, only makes making those decisions harder. And to each decision, we bring our own experiences, our biases, our emotions, our hopes for the future, some of which we're aware of, some of which we're not. And quite quickly, we can end up in a state of what the psychologists call analysis paralysis. We've worked the decision through so many times in our head, looking at so many different types of scenarios, um, that we can't possibly make a decision. It's just too confusing. And perhaps for some of you, it might feel that being a Christian just makes some of those decisions a little bit harder. After all, once upon a time, I just needed to make a decision that meant um, that I could be content, that I was happy. But now I've got to make decisions that mean that I want to live in a way that pleases God. If I was like everyone else in my culture, if I got the wrong marriage partner, well, that would be sad, but I could just start again. But the Bible says that marriage is for life, so I've really got to pour over that decision. What if I choose the wrong job, or choose the wrong place to live, or go to the wrong church? Perhaps I'll miss God's will for my life altogether, and everything will end in disaster. I see so many people up at the front of church talking about God's calling to do this or that, and well, to be honest, I'm not hearing anything. I think I know that God has a plan for my life, but how do I know what it is? So this evening, our aim is to try and look uh, at what the Bible teaches about the will of God and how that can help us in our decision-making. 
So we're going to um, look first at the sovereign will of God. Now, some people think that God is um, really a bit like those classical gods uh, of the Greeks and Romans. They're sitting up there somewhere, looking down at the events on earth, um, perhaps for their entertainment, sometimes intervening, depending on their mood. But that is not the God of the Bible. Rather, the God of the Bible is a sovereign author of creation. Not only did he make the universe and everything in it, everything remains under his absolute control. Absolutely everything. Nothing happens without his active decision that it should happen. Nothing is outside of its will, even the evil actions of man. Now, perhaps that comes as a bit of a shock to you. After all, if it's true, then we return to that age-old question, how can a good God allow suffering? It's easy to see why that truth about God's sovereignty is diluted. But the Bible is absolutely packed full of this truth. Indeed, it's at the very heart of the gospel narrative. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, Peter writes, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The most evil event in history, the rejection and murder of God himself, had been decided in advance by God. It was no accident that Jesus came to die for us, but it was always part of God's will. So let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 30. And in those verses preceding um, 28 and 30, Paul has acknowledged that suffering is all around his readers. Creation is broken. Even his readers' bodies are broken. They're groaning inwardly, waiting for the redemption of their bodies. And Paul here is addressing the fear of these believers who may have been tempted to look around and wondered where it had all gone wrong. Where was God in all of this brokenness and suffering? But Paul wants to reassure them of God's sovereign will, his absolute control over everything. Look down at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The suffering you see around you is real, says Paul, but not only is suffering compatible with the sovereign God, but through this suffering, God is working for your good. After all, it was by Jesus' suffering that we were rescued and we're called to follow him. What did Jesus say on the cross as he died? It is finished. My suffering has finished, says Jesus. God's wrath has been removed. I have covered all your sins. And Paul asks his reader to turn to that truth of the cross. He goes on to say in verses 29 and 30, For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn, uh, firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified. Nothing will stop God from calling his people to him. He's going to declare them right in his eyes. They're going to be justified, and he's going to glorify them. And when will he do this? You will be called. You will be justified. You will be glorified. Just hang on in there. No, you have been called. You have been justified. You have been glorified. And these promises are not fully realized yet, but the promises are written in the past tense because they're absolutely certain. 
Their power lies in the finished work of the cross and the will of a sovereign God. They're part of God's sovereign rescue plan seen through the Bible and perfectly executed at the cross. Now, if you're anything like me, it's easy to forget this truth, how quickly we start to doubt what the future holds for us and we're tempted to go back to believing that our future depends on us and the decisions that we make. We're trying to do the right thing, but life, well, it just doesn't seem to be going according to plan. None of those things we hoped for, a satisfying career, a loving relationship, uh, children and, a good, and good health seem to come our way. Or perhaps they come for a time, only to be taken away. And I, then I look around and see that really those that don't follow God seem to be doing just fine. So I'm tempted to ask if this suffering is coming because of my sin or a lack of faith or because just I've made the wrong choices. I've missed God's will for my life. But God's sovereign will means that whether our decisions are good or bad, God is leading his people home to glory. So that's God's sovereign will. The second aspect of God's will that we're going to look at tonight is his moral will. Now, uh, God's moral will relates to those things that please or displease God. So he loves it when we worship him. He loves it when we open our Bibles and read his word, when we pray to him, when we love our neighbor. He hates it when we have idols or when we're jealous of what those around us have. And whereas God's sovereign, uh, sovereign will is often not seen, uh, particularly in advance, God has made his moral will plain to us in the Bible. And his moral will applies to each and every one of us. Uh, whether we're a man or a woman, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we live in Britain uh, or New Zealand, his moral will applies, uh, applies to each and every one of us. And that's, that moral will is what Paul picks up in our second reader, reading in 1 Thessalonians. So why don't you turn to that now? That's page... 1,188. <clears throat> now, by way of background, the Thessalonians were a group of incredibly new Christians. Um, Paul had barely had the chance uh, to share the gospel with him before he was smuggled out of town in the dead of night before he could be arrested. And so as a result, these very new Christians were left to fend for themselves in a hostile city. Um, they didn't have a trained minister, they had no books, online sermons, all the other resources that perhaps we take for granted. So unsurprisingly, Paul is very fearful for what's happened to these fledgling Christians. So when he gets the chance, he sends Timothy to see how they're doing and to strengthen and encourage them. And when uh, Timothy returns to Paul with the good news that they're continuing in their faith, Paul is full of thanksgiving. But in chapter 3, verse 10, it seems that Timothy reports that there are some things lacking from their faith, and presumably this includes uh, issues around their sex lives, given the verses that we read earlier. Now, uh, Thessalonians lived in Macedonia, uh, uh, in a Greek city, and therefore their sexual ethics would have been very different uh, to the Jewish culture. Effectively, anything went. Anything was acceptable, perhaps a way of living much more akin to Western culture than those, uh, for those raised in a Jewish faith. Now, when I was growing up as a Christian in my teens and at university, a common conversation um, circled around what behavior was acceptable between two Christians of the opposite sex. And as you can imagine, there was considerable variation. Uh, some I knew employed a 12-inch rule, that was the distance of separation to be maintained between a man and a woman who, who were not married, unless dating, and then holding hands may be acceptable. Now we all knew that the Bible says that sex uh, is for marriage between a man and a woman, but what we were really wanting was some details about dating, uh, kissing, holding hands, and the rest of it. 
And if Paul had turned up in our Christian Union at university to talk on this subject, uh, the room would have been packed, eagerly awaiting those uh, who, were, uh, who wanted a very detailed list of do's and don'ts. And perhaps that would have been useful for the Thessalonians too. But rather than giving them a set of rules, Paul pulls back to look at the much bigger picture, which I think will help us inform our views on sexual purity, um, but also can be applied to the way that we live our lives uh, more generally. So first and foremost, we have the instructions we need, and they're not from man, but they're from God. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So whilst my friends and I were obsessing about what God has not revealed, Paul says, you want to know how to please, your God, uh, please God in your sex lives? Well, look in the Bible. Rather than obsessing about what God has not revealed, focus on what he has revealed. Today's culture will tell you that we need a new set of rules around sex for the 21st century. They fail to see that the sex lives of the ancient Greeks were probably just as promiscuous, if not more, than today's culture. But even if it weren't so, God's word is sufficient for all of us in every age and in every area of life. Secondly, Paul reminds them of God's will for those trusting in Jesus. Verse 3, it is God's will that you are sanctified. That means to be made clean and set apart for God. Verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. I was chatting to Chris Stead uh, last week and I was telling him that I had to talk on this uh, passage and uh, he'd preached on this previously and he told me that Paul's exhortation to avoid sexual immorality was akin to the warning you'd give someone if there's a massive pile of nuclear waste in the middle of church. You'd say, don't go near it, don't get anywhere near it. Um, and that's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians uh, now. The passage seems to imply that before they knew God, they would have been just like the culture around them. They'd have behaved as the unbelievers or pagans did. And rather than controlling their bodies, they would have just followed their passionate lusts. But Paul says, no, God has rescued you from that life. He's made you clean. He wants you to be sanctified. Don't contaminate yourselves because God's will is that you might live differently, that your lives may be holy and honorable. Our desire so often is for rules and technicalities, reflecting our desire perhaps to do the bare minimum. But God is longing that we're transformed in the likeness of Jesus. Seeking to be holy and honorable is not to be shortchanged. Sure, loving and desiring someone uh, is a truly wonderful thing. But God is not asking us to settle for second best. He's offering something far better. Our broken bodies are still going to crave those wrong things. And Paul says we're going to need to learn to control those desires. It'll probably feel unnatural. It will definitely mark us out as different to the culture around us. But as we immerse ourselves in God's word and prayer, then the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us will undertake this work of transformation. Finally, Paul warns them to ensure that no one should, take, uh, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, verse 6. Perhaps one of the most striking hallmarks of uh, sin is that um, it really reflects a desire to live for ourselves. It's the maximum of our age. You must do what is right for you. But so often sexual sin means that we cause others to fall into sin, whether that's with a partner or by the example that we set. 
God is jealous for his people. We read earlier in Romans 8.29 that Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. God is calling to himself a people, a family, and he's conforming them to the likeness of his son. We're to do nothing that damages that work. This is God's moral will. And what is God's will for your life? It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should live a holy life. So what are we waiting for? Uh, we've talked about God's sovereign and moral will, but perhaps at this point, many of you are wait, uh, waiting for the secret, the crescendo where I explain how we know God's person-specific will for you and me. You know, the one that told me that Fiona Kennedy was the one for me, the one that I should, get, uh, that I should marry. Uh, the one that told me that I uh, was to go to medical school and become a doctor, that I should have three children. These, this very specific plan that God has for my life. Now, it's true to say that all of these things are part of God's sovereign uh, will, otherwise they wouldn't have happened. But I really only know that in hindsight. But if you're wanting that sort of uh, revelation, I'm afraid that God has not left any of us a secret map detailing every twist and turn for our lives. There are no cryptic clues for us to puzzle over in order to make sure that I choose the right path. But too often, that's how Christians feel. And sadly, sometimes that's what we're taught. Choose rightly and a life of success and happiness awaits. Choose wrongly and we'll leave God's path and may be lost forever. Rather, God's less concerned as to whether I'm a doctor or a trapeze artist, but he's deeply concerned as to whether I will act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God in whatever role I choose to do. What God expects of me is no more and no less true for any other Christian. Now, it is true to say that God may graciously reveal some of his will for you in a very clear way, but that is not the norm for our lives. Sometimes we may feel more subtly we're being pushed or pulled in one direction or another by the Holy Spirit. But such feelings can be wrong or right. They cannot replace the infallibility of God's word revealed to us in the Bible. That's where we must always return. And if this sounds disappointing, have you paused to consider what life would look like if you knew exactly what God had in store for you? I can't know for sure, but would you not focus on the details, waiting for the day a tall, dark stranger spilled coffee over you on a rainy day in London after it was revealed this is how you'd meet your future husband or wife? Or if you knew you were going to die in a freak accident aged 29, would you somehow seek to change that plan of God? Or would you live your life in your 20s rather differently? You see, not knowing the future is meant to allow us to fully depend on the one who does know the future. And instead, it should allow us to focus on him and immerse ourselves in his word and pray to him the very things that are going to mean that we're transformed into his likeness. Too often, I think, as Christians, we're so distracted by what we think God might want us to do that we fail to see what God is asking us to do. There's a story of Christopher Wren, who, having designed St. Paul's Cathedral, had put the men to work. And one day he walked amongst them unrecognized and asked them what they were doing. He inquired of one man, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm cutting a piece of stone. He went to another man and he said, well, I'm earning five shillings, two pence a day. And to a third man, he addressed the same inquiry. And the man answered, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a beautiful 
cathedral. And that should be the response of every Christian. To my eyes or to the eyes of those around me, my work may appear to lack meaning, but God has called you to where you find yourself now. And if you can be obedient to God in that role, then you can serve him there. That is not to say you're not free to change your circumstances in line with God's moral will, but it shouldn't prevent you from being obedient to him and seeking to live a holy, honorable life in every situation. So tomorrow, when you wake up and get ready to go to work as an accountant, a doctor, a minister, a teacher, a waitress, a cleaner, or a mother or father, whether you have plenty or whether you wonder how you're going to pay the bills, whether you're married or single, healthy, or struggling with illness, whether you're content or in the midst of suffering that threatens to overwhelm you, please know that God's sovereign will cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stop Jesus dying on the cross for you. Nothing will stop God from bringing those who trust in Jesus into his glory for all of eternity. And so until God wills that our time in this earth is finished, Let us not worry that our decision-making means that we're going to have to settle for second best. Instead, may we seek to know him with all our heart and live in a way that pleases him. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you know each and every one of us, you have a will for our lives, but that we do not need to concern ourselves with that. Merely we're to reflect on all that you've done for us in your uh, son Jesus' death and to live lives that are worthy of you. Father, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would uh, meditate on your word and that we'd bring all things to you in prayer and to live lives worthy of you. We ask this in your name. Amen.